sentiments and traditions that we ascribe to Christmas often don't align with the reality of our experience this time of year. The cheerful carols and the twinkling lights and the delicious treats, my favorite part, belie what's really happening in our lives. The things that we're really facing, the things that we're really feeling. And we love Christmas for its warmth, the traditions and the belonging and the festivities, the parties, my other favorite part. And we cherish well wishes from people that we love, from perfect strangers on the street. But while we're surrounded by the beauty of all those things, we can be experiencing anything from like a low grade sort of holiday blues to a full blown suffering and misery. And that's what I wanna talk about today, suffering. Specifically Christmas and suffering. So how's that? You came to church and Advent and you're expecting a nice uplifting experience and I'm gonna talk about suffering in the sermon. And of course, suffering doesn't only happen at Christmas. It's just that this time of year, we're acutely aware of it. When we're suffering at Christmas, when you're inside the lonely trap of suffering and watching other people, busy sidewalks, people, holiday smiles, I forget the silver bells words, but that's hard to watch when you are suffering. And this isn't a unique uh, experience, right? Suffering and Christmas. Those two things have always been intertwined from the very beginning. It's an ancient pairing that goes back to the very first Christmas. So let's look at the very first Christmas. As the birth of Christ approached, Israel was suffering. They were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. God had been silent amongst his people for over 400 years. There weren't fir trees and parties and carols. Instead, there were sorrowful funeral dirges. The stunningly beautiful song that we sang earlier, I'm not gonna try to lie to you and say like, oh, look how that worked out. We sang a song about my sermon. I asked Alf if we could sing that song. But O Come Emmanuel, that song is written from the voice of the Israelites in this time. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. These are cries from people desperate for freedom and salvation from oppression. They're putting their hope in Emmanuel, the long-promised Messiah. His arrival would be their joy. Turn to Mary and Joseph. They, Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem. You know the story, 90 miles 
pregnant girl on the donkey, that's suffering in itself. They, they weren't in Bethlehem for a festive family Christmas gathering. There was family there. By definition, they had to all travel in this time to their hometowns. So we can assume they had members of their family in town, but there was no feast, there were no gifts exchanged. They were there involuntarily for a census, a mockery of Israel's traditions and religion, a tool for oppression and taxation. That was the organizing principle of the first Christmas gathering. And then, of course, we know in the days following the birth of Jesus, we know what's called the massacre of the innocents. Matthew 2 describes a heartbreaking and harrowing scene when King Herod was tipped off by the Magi who were traveling through town that there had been an arrival of a new Jewish king. This is a potential threat to his own reign. And Matthew says, when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We tell these stories of Christmas like they're old and ancient, but put yourself in that scene, mothers weeping because their two-year-old sons and younger were no more. So right there in the center of the Christmas story is tragedy and unfathomable suffering as mothers in Bethlehem wept inconsolably over the death of their sons. So the realities of the very first Christmas were taxes, oppression, death, and grief. So I, if I haven't yet cast a dark enough pall over your Christmas spirit, let me just remind you that suffering at Christmas is not just an ancient phenomenon specific to Israel. It continues in more recent history and much closer to home for us. In 2011, Christmas morning, there was a fire in Stamford, Connecticut, half an hour from here, that killed three children, Sarah, Grace, and Lily Badger, their mother, Madonna's parents, Matt, and Madonna and their three children were from Tribeca. They lived right here in our neighborhood. Matt came and sat with us right here in this room soon after that tragedy on Mission Sunday. That's close to home. On December 14, 2012, 20 more children were tragically killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School, just about 75 miles from here in Newtown, Connecticut. And 10 days later, our pastor at the time, Ryan Holiday, calls me and tells me he's going to preach a sermon on that at our, at our Christmas Eve service. He was going to explain how 
the massacre of the innocents and the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School uh, were similar. And boy, was I terrified about that sermon. It's Christmas Eve. This is not what people are coming for carols and Christmas cookies, not massacre of children. But of course, it was beautiful, the sermon. On Christmas Eve 2015, a few years later, the next year, uh, my husband Dan and I invited some friends of ours to come with us to that same Christmas Eve service. And they brought with them a woman named Kadisha Berry, who had recently immigrated from Sierra Leone. And while she was in Sierra Leone, she had watched her entire family be raped, chopped to pieces with machetes, and Kadisha herself was put on a chain and dragged around for a year as a sex slave until one of the rebels that had attacked her family took pity on her and delivered her safely to some missionaries across the border. And then Kadisha ended up here in New York City in a trauma program at NYU. And that night, right here in this room, was the first time she'd gone anywhere besides NYU Hospital or her job. And as I, I knew the story, and as I looked around the room, I just wondered if the weight of Kadisha's suffering could be felt in the room, could be felt by the worshipers here as we sang our carols and ate our Christmas cookies. And then just this weekend, tornadoes ripped through the Midwest where my husband is from, killing I don't even know how many people, hundreds in Kentucky, Illinois, Missouri, the surrounding areas. So suffering is a reality of Christmas. But remember, today's Advent candle is joy. See, you've probably assumed that I wouldn't open a discussion on suffering without also offering us some hope. We have to somehow get from suffering to joy. And right now, that feels like a long way. But don't worry, we're, I promise we'll get there. I have to tell you, suffering is one of the topics that I fear most that people will bring up when they find out I'm a Christian or when they find out I'm a pastor. You want to ask me about the historicity of Jesus? I love that. I'm all over that. Let's go. You want to talk about Jesus' mission to free oppressed people, his disdain for religious zealots, yes, I will do that all day long. But the classic, you know, why does God let bad things happen to good people? That one really leaves me feeling speechless. Like I don't have anything meaningful to say that would provide the least bit of comfort to someone who's truly suffering. Why would God let atrocities like this happen? Is he not powerful enough to stop them? Or if he's powerful, does he just not care enough to stop them? In August, I received a text from a close friend whose 18-year-old son, the only child of a single mom, had just died from suicide. And her words still haunt me. All caps, I have lost 
all faith. All faith. Of course you have. Of course you have. You have just looked evil directly in the eye and you've seen its destruction, its twisted, bottomless darkness. The sons of Korah, who wrote Psalm 42, seem to know this misery well in this beautiful and haunting poetry. This is verse six. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Savior, and my God. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. True suffering is exactly like that. We're pulled beneath the waves. We struggle to rise to the surface just to get a breath, to be heard in the noise and the chaos of the waterfalls that surround us. And we get there only to be overcome by yet another wave. Deep calls to deep. The Hebrew word translated here as deep refers to the deepest depths of the sea. And the only thing that can reach us in the bottomless fathoms of sorrow as something equally or more deep. The only one with resources great enough to meet us in the depths of our sorrow and our need is God himself. God's knowledge is deep. His thoughts are unsearchable. His love is so deep and so wide that it can't be measured. And he is able to do immeasurably more than we ask. His resources are deeper than our suffering. From the depth of his despair, the psalmist remembers the depth of God's goodness. And he's able to stop and say, wait, why am I discouraged why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my savior and my God. We sang those same words earlier, come Lord Jesus, come. Oh come Emmanuel. So how is the birth of Jesus supposed to be comforting to me? 
how does suffering connect to Christmas? And this morning, I want to suggest that the evil that exists in our world, and it does, it does not contradict the teachings or the spirit of Christmas, but rather that the suffering of this life aligns with reality as experienced by Jesus Christ himself, whose birth and whose name we're celebrating in this season. Jesus knows all about our pain. Isaiah 53.3 alludes to him as a man of sorrows. He was despised and rejected by mankind, like a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And that prophecy, Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus, came true. He experienced much suffering in his lifetime. We all know the story of Jesus and Lazarus. That's in John 11. And it's long, so I'm going to paraphrase because it seemed weird to have Logan stand here and read an entire chapter of the Bible. But I encourage you to go back and read it because you will see things that you missed in Sunday school when you were a kid. Go back and read it. For now, here's my synopsis. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were close friends of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. Mary's the one that poured the perfume on Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair. So Jesus gets a message from the sisters saying, Lazarus, the one you love, is sick. So when he gets this message, Jesus says something really bold. In verse 4, he says, this sickness will not end in death. So you think, okay, good. Jesus is going to come save the day. But rather than running to his friend's side, Jesus stays put for two more days. This prolific miracle worker who surely could heal his friend didn't go running to his friend. He stayed put. Then finally, after a couple of days, he says, okay, now it's time. We're going to go back to Judea. That's where Lazarus town was. And the disciples said, are you sure about that? Do you remember a little bit ago when we were there and the rabbis all tried to stone you? I don't think it's safe for us to go. And Jesus says, guys, Lazarus is dead. Wait a second. Remember verse 4 where he said that the sickness wouldn't end in death? Two days earlier, Jesus had said, this sickness will not end in death. And he follows that up with an even more audacious claim, which is, Lazarus is dead, and I'm going to go wake him up. Let's go. And Thomas, my favorite disciple, the one I identified most with, says, sure, let's go. Fine. Then we'll all be dead. We can just all be dead together. That's what Thomas says. So they make the trip to Bethany, and when they arrive, each sister, Martha and then Mary, separately but the same, run out to Jesus and say, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. 
Mary falls to the ground, overwhelmed by her grief, is weeping at Jesus' feet. Jesus looks around, and all the mourners who had gathered, they'd had days together, they were all weeping. And verse 33 tells us that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That means he was sad. He was angry. And then in an, in an incredibly human response to sadness and anger, he wept. And we know from there, the sisters lead Jesus to Lazarus' tomb. Jesus asks for the tomb to be opened. He looks up to heaven, prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and calls out to Lazarus and this man who had been dead for four days gets up and walks out. So what's the lesson here? Is it that Jesus gets some sort of special privilege when he's suffering, when one of his friends dies? That he and his buddies don't have to suffer long when they suffer? That God hears Jesus cries, but he doesn't hear mine? Let's go back and fill in some of the details on that story, specifically the things that Jesus said. In response to Thomas's reticence to make the trip to Bethany, Jesus says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. He's saying, I'm the light. I'm the light, Thomas. If you follow me, you're safe. If you choose not to follow me, it's those who don't follow me that are in darkness and facing danger. And his response to Martha when she rebuked him for not coming sooner, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? His response to Martha when she hesitated to have the grave opened, he says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? This is fundamental, Martha. The most important thing that you can do in this moment, in your suffering, in your grief, is to remind yourself who I am and affirm that you believe that in your heart. My plan can only work if you believe. And he's asking you that same question in your suffering, in your grief today. The rest of Jesus' prayer to God after he said, thank you for I know you've heard me was, I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. If you listen to all of Jesus' words from that day, it's as if he's saying, I'm showing you the way. I'm showing you how to get from here 
to joy. I am Emmanuel. You've been calling for me. You're safe with me. Allow yourself to face the reality of your suffering. It's real. I feel it too. Trust me. Believe in me. I will be in it with you until it's finished, and it will be finished. I have a plan. So this miracle of Lazarus' resurrection was not a one-off special perk for friends of Jesus. It was an illustration of what was to come for Jesus himself and for all of us, of our suffering and how to be victorious over it. It's that roadmap that we've been looking for. And of course, Lazarus' death wasn't the only example of Jesus' suffering. The cross was still ahead of him. In Matthew 26, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, and he says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is Jesus. He knew the plan. And he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point he didn't think he could survive it. Do you know that feeling? There's, we, we put a lot of emphasis on the nature of Jesus' death on the cross, how horrible it was. And it was horrible. But it wasn't all about the suffering on the cross. Lots of martyrs suffered the same or worse. Lots of criminals were crucified. But none of them faced the hallows of hell, bearing not only their own sin, but the sin of all the rest of God's children, your sin and mine. As Jesus hung on the cross with his head drooping, Hell itself opened up beneath his feet. And he knew where he was going and the burden that he carried with him as he went. Our burden. There's debate about the meaning of this Jesus' descent into hell as it's described in the Apostles' Creed. You know, how exactly is it that Jesus descended into hell? When exactly did that happen? Was this a literal descent? Was it figurative? And if it was literal, what exactly did that entail? Like how much time did he spend there? What did he do while he was there? And so regardless of which interpretation of the descent with which you align, they all share this one truth. And that is that Jesus Christ knew the pain of suffering and hell. Just like it was revealed to him, it has been revealed to many of you. If you've lost a child, if you've faced chemotherapy and radiation and surgeries, if your family's been torn apart, you have looked the same beast in the eye. You have stood in the darkness. You have tasted a little bit of hell. When people are suffering, especially when someone dies, Christians tend to 
rather than sit in that pain and feel the suffering, they have this quick trigger reaction to start talking about heaven. Like it's gonna fix everything. Like it's the answer to all our problems. And in times of real suffering, that can come across as a little tone deaf, a little naive. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't glide into Bethany and say, hey guys, praise God, Lazarus is in a better place. And I brought signed copies of my new book on heaven for everybody. That actually happened to me at my dad's funeral. Um, yeah. Jesus knew about heaven. It's his home. It's where he came from. It's where he lives. But his knowledge of heaven in no way diminished the pain that he experienced in his lifetime. Not when Lazarus died, not in the Garden of Gethsemane, and not on the cross. He didn't model shortcuts or exemptions or offer platitudes. He suffered. He faced hell. Heaven is important not because it covers over all our pain. What's important about heaven is that it grounds our understanding of hell. Hell is the breeding ground, the incubator, the point of origin for all evil. All the forces of darkness that have stolen your days, your dreams, your people, they come from hell. And until you've looked that in the eye, stared into the abyss, been enveloped by that darkness, you don't really yet understand the importance of heaven. Jesus described humanity as bearing the image and the dignity of God and yet being infected with death and fear and self-defeating tendencies. His mission in coming, O come Emmanuel, was to set us free from these things, to eradicate them from our very nature, and to send them back from where they came. The reason Jesus had to go to hell is so that God could put an end to death and darkness without putting an end to you and me. He didn't intend for this world to be plagued by death and darkness. It's not how he created it. The suffering of his people makes him sad and angry. Injustice and illness and pain and sorrow. He hates all of those things. He hates them as much as we do more. And he hates it so much that he's done something about it. And 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, that Logan read earlier, describes exactly what he's done. I'll read it again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you 
who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. This is why Christmas is real and why it's for you. Christmas is, a mu is as much about the suffering as it is about the joy. The joy of heaven is predicated on the suffering of hell. Joy isn't the opposite of suffering. It's the resolution of suffering. First suffering, then joy. 2,000 years ago, God's people sang sorrowful dirges. They lifted up their tears and suffering to a God who had been silent for 400 years and begged, begged him to come back to them, to send help. And the Christ child was born. Today, again, we find ourselves bereft and in need of supernatural help. Oh, I don't really need a savior, you might say. Maybe not. Maybe you can handle suffering better than I can, the trials of this life. But you are no match for hell. We're crying out again. Come quickly, Lord. The one you love is sick. Come, oh come, Emmanuel. We need you here. And he is coming again. Those who seek him will be sustained through their present sufferings. Good will finally and fully prevail over evil. And we, once again, can rejoice. Advent is a time of expectation, of waiting. So use that time. Open your heart now for what's to come. You have suffered. Now prepare for joy. Let's pray. Father, I just ask the protection that you promise us in Peter's words. I ask your protection over the hearts of your people who are suffering. Father, I just ask that finally you would crush the barriers that keep us from believing, from trusting your plan. The most cynical, the most capable realize this morning that we are sick and we need you to come. We thank you, Father, that you love us enough to grieve and suffer with us, and that you've made a way out.
of our suffering. Thank you, Lord Jesus.